0: Hello, hello, hello. Today is Monday, July 29th, 2019, which means it's time for another episode of Actors on Process. Before we get into today's episode, have you subscribed yet? If not, take a minute and do it now. I'll wait. Okay, just kidding, but please do it soon. (laughs) Anyway, today's guest is my friend, Telly Leung. As I'll explain in the episode, We met in 2016 doing The Taming of the Shrew together at the Shakespeare Theatre in Washington, D.C., and immediately we became fast friends. When I knew I was going to be working on this podcast, Telly was one of the first people I thought of who absolutely needed to be interviewed. He's been on Broadway in seven shows, most recently as Aladdin in Aladdin, and perhaps you also know him from his days on Glee. Anyway, fasten your seatbelts and enjoy the ride that Telly is about to take you on. He's an incredible storyteller and a genuine mensch. And now, Telly Leung.
1: Hi, Hi, James. So, I'm going to say this, and Telly is going to cringe, but it's okay. Because okay. what I want to say is, what makes Telly Leung unique is his indefatigable work ethic, his talent, his spirit, and his overwhelming generosity. He inspired me every day when we met in 2016, and I understudied him as Lucentio in an all-male production of The Taming of the Shrew at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. In that production, in addition to Shakespeare's text... Telly played the piano on stage, in the lobby before the show, (laughs) during the show, (laughs) and he sang several songs. He always carried himself as a true company leader. I was in awe of him and was so proud to ultimately become his friend.
2: And now, without further ado... Telly Leung. Hi, James. <laughs> so. You didn't mention that I also, like, um, I also took tickets and I also swept the stage and I also built some costumes. It, you did it all. I did it all. You fully we did re- it all. We, re- we worked our tails off on that show. You fully did it all. We all did. Well, you really,
1: you really <laughs> did a lot. But I want you to please explain who Telly was as a kid. Uh-huh. So, paint a picture of who you were growing up in New York and teaching yourself to play the Overture to Cats on the
2: piano. I do- <laughs> so I, um, you know, I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, uh, from a very traditional Chinese family, immigrant family. You know, they came to New York City in the 70s with like 200 bucks and a couple of suitcases. They crashed on friends' couches in Chinatown and they could only afford to have one kid and that was me. So I was an only child. So I was an only child with not very many friends and a very active imagination. Um, and um, And, you know, I stumbled upon theater because I was uh, because of PBS I was watching great performances on PBS and I saw the original company of Into the Woods that was filmed live at the Martin Beck Theater with Joanna Gleason and Chip Scion and Bernadette Peters you know that that incredible and that's what really hooked me I said what is this what's happening these are fairytale characters that I know but they're singing and they're so clever and everything rhymes and there's an audience there where does this magic happen little did I know that it was like an hour away on the subway is where all of this happened, right? And of course, my parents were not theater parents. They weren't, you know, they they were, you know, my mom worked as a seamstress in, in the garment factories of Chinatown. My dad worked in Chinese restaurants all over Chinatown and New Jersey. Like, they didn't have time to like go, hey, let's go to the museum or let's go to the theater in New York City. Like, they were busy making money and saving every penny and feeding their only kid. So, so you know, I really, like, it was by accident that I discovered theater. And the first Broadway show I ever went to live was with my grammar school at PS127. They took us to cats. So <laughs> that's how I got to see cats. I know, James, you have a you have a, a very deep <laughs> Shitty affection. Grin, and I love cats. I know. And that uh, you love cats. We who doesn't love cats? I mean, it is the guilty pleasure of all music I theater. Love cats. Here's the thing, you people people really like give cats a hard time. I had a blast. I was like an eight-year-old kid seeing cats. It was like, it was magical. What could be better than the It it makes no, as an adult going back and watching it now, some of it makes no sense. But as a kid, thrilling, thrilling. thrilling. And so, um, you know, like every other traditional Chinese kid, you had to like play the piano or the violin. It was just a a necessity, a requirement. So, uh, you know, of course, like you start off playing Mozart and Fioris and Beethoven and all those things. And all of a sudden, I was like, I don't want to play any of this. I was like, I want to like, I wanted to play, like, Billy Joel and Elton John and Stevie Wonder. I wanted to, like, play, like, those guys who sang their own songs. And then I was like... And I also want to play show tunes, which is how I got to learn the overture to Cats. But a side note very quickly.
1: But the side note of this amazing thing is that when you showed me that you knew how to play it by memory, (laughs) I was so fascinated because the vocal selection book that I have of Cats Mm -hmm. does not have the overture in it.
2: Well... And yours does. Correct. And it's because... Growing up in New York City, I had the luxury of, you know, I went to high school in Manhattan at a math and science high school. Again, like not theater was not in the trajectory. Like I was there to like, you know, get really good grades and go to Harvard and become a doctor one day. Right. Mm -hmm. But like I would save up my allowance money. And, you know, when you go to New York City public school and you're and you you get a MetroCard. That's part of like, so I had a metro card to discover the city. So I often after school, I would go to museums or I would save up my allowance money and go to the TKTS booth on a Wednesday and get a ticket for a matinee or something. Do you know I mean if I could, you know, and so I, I often did that, you know, and I, I remembered like there was a great store, which was on the ground floor of the Brill building colony called music. Sam Ash. Oh. No, not Sam Ash. I'm sorry. Colony. Colony. Yes. Colony music. That's what it was. Colony. And I remember I would always go to Colony and like I would buy sheet music. This was before you could go online and download it Mm -hmm. to a PDF. This was like you had to go physically get the the score. And I saw there was like this, there was this cat selection book that was like limited edition that had the overture and had like it wasn't like the vocal selections where it was like pop selections that was like it wasn't like done in like it was done in the show's keys. And I was like, this is awesome. One of the first full scores I ever got was the West Side Story score. Oh, the full like the thing, full. the full thing, the full piano vocal for it had the like show. A light blue Conductor cover. score. Yes, it, yep. That was one of the I first things I ever owned, and I, that was expensive too at the time. I remember it was like Very, forty bucks 50, or something. Yeah. forty or fifty bucks, and you'd save up all that money to be mm-hmm. like, all right. Well, that's what it was for me too. Oh my gosh,
1: we've taken such a segue, but this is like what it was for me too. Like I went to the local library and I took, I took, I took out South Pacific, and mm-hmm. I like learned how to play author, scene change music, yeah. everything. Well, you're I a better player know, than I am. I sort I of gave that's it up. True, but I had to know, I had to know how to play everything. Um, and that's what it was for me too. West Side story I found to be way too difficult hard. for me to play. Hard. I could play the beginning, but it was hard to
2: play. But anyway, <laughs> in high school, mm-hmm. were you in the school plays? Yeah, that's so I did a lot of, the first musical I ever did was in high school. And really it, and was, it was just was. Pippin. Um, I was a freshman and they cast me as Lewis, who's Pippin's brother and his first time I'm ever on a stage his entrance he's shirtless he's wearing white tights right. and he jumps on stage and he kisses his muscles right. you know Lewis is addicted to the physical like all of that and I really like that was like trial by fire like if I can jump in front of my entire school shirtless shirtless in white tights and not be embarrassed then I'm good I basically go. can do anything like I can do anything yeah. so it was it, it was really great and I and I had a phenomenal teacher there um, his name was Vinnie Grasso. He was from Brooklyn. He taught mechanical drafting and engineering. Again, math and science school, right? We wow. all had to take drafting and mechanical drafting. But he volunteered his time after school to direct all the school musicals. And he was just this guy who loved, who loved the theater, and like he taught the kids how to. He did everything. He taught everybody how to build the sets, how to like design the sets, and he wow. also directed the shows. And um, he was the one that 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 said, you know, he was the one that really said you you should really. If you love this, you should do it. He was the one that pushed me into he it. He inspired you into it. He that. did, very much so. And he also was the first person that said, you know, you're at Stuyvesant. If you want to do anything else with your time as a profession, do that. And just do this for fun. But if you wake up in the morning and this is the only thing you think about, then this is what you're meant to do.
1: And it was. at the time. Ta- t- yes, become... I, it
2: really was. Because, you know, when you go to a school like Stuyvesant, you're surrounded by people who... See the world in math and see the world in science. I was a good student. I was good at math, I was good at science. but I didn't like, that's not how I saw the world. Like the the analogy I always give is that you like my classmates would see like a leaf falling off a tree because it was fall and the leaves were changing and they would, they could calibrate the physics of like how it would fall from the tree or like the biochem majors would look at it and go, well, this is the chemical reaction that's making this. And I looked at the leaf and I was like, I hear a song and Beautiful like, what poem, yeah, like yeah. what poem am I going to write? Like what poem am I going to write about? And Oh, that sad leaf that falls, but this is the rebirth of life circle. Of it. I mean, I thought, I just thought differently than everybody else. And so being in that environment, I was like, Oh, I, I, in class, I was like, I'm good at this. I, I can get good grades. I'm a good test taker. Okay. I don't like l- l- I don't like dream about waking up and dissecting a frog or going to chemistry like yeah. my classmates. I dream about going to my rehearsal after school. So I was like, "Oh, there's there's a I I'm very different than everybody else." And also, high school, you know, doing high school theater, that's where you find your tribe. Yes. What else happened, Pippin? Pippin, then I did Guys and Dolls. Okay. Guys and Dolls, which um Famously, I was Nicely, Nicely Johnson, and Billy Eichner of Billy on the Street was Nathan Detroit. (laughs) Billy basically just, the shtick he does now, which is just yelling at people on the street, that was his Nathan Detroit. They sell more cheesecake than strudel! I mean, like, it's the same person. Yeah, yeah. Um, Who else was in that? Oh, Emily Young. Who is a who, um, is right now in the Off Broadway? Merrily We Roll Along, but she also does a lot of stuff with that company from Fiasco. Brown Fiasco. She's a Fiasco member. She's done in the Into the. She was a Little Red and in Into the Woods for them. She she was my hope, and I was Billy. Oh, was that junior year? Or year? That was my junior year, and then my no that, no. I'm sorry. That was my that was my junior year. It was Anything Goes, uh-huh. Guys and Dolls, Kelly Carbage, who is now on Orange Is a New Black. But she, eventually we would do Rent together on Broadway. She was Sarah Brown. Um, who else was in that? And then and then my senior year, Emily and I, again, reprised our, our, our lover roles. I was Tony and she was Maria.
1: Oh, so you ended with the... West Side Story. Ultimate. Yes. And
2: actually Vinnie Grasso had said to me my senior year, he's like, I'm doing West Side Story and the only reason I'm doing it is for you because you are Chinese and you will never play Tony in the real world. You probably will never do this. This is your one and only chance. I'm doing it for you. Now, we also went to a math and science school. 60% of my high school was Asian. Wow. <laughs> I know. It's a stereotype, but, you know, what can you do? Wow. But, like, so they really, like, it was a very, like, you know, it's high school. So, like, you know, all, all the Asian kids were the Jets and everybody else was the Sharks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, when did you know that this was, like,
2: it? for Well, Telly? I don't know. I don't know if I ever knew it was it. The... But I will say that when I was in high school, I um, got my first professional job. Okay. I The, du- the WB Network, which, used, which is now the CW Network, it's the 11 affiliate here in New York City, and also in other places like St. Louis and Puerto Rico. Anyway, the WB Network used to have um, Michigan J. Frog as their spokesperson. Michigan J. Frog, who was like on all the Looney Tunes cartoons, like, mm-hmm. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Hello, my—you know, that frog— was, would be, like, the the, the mascot hmm. on the, you know. And WB wanted to form, like, a Mickey Mouse Club for the WB network called the WB Team 11, and I was a Team 11 member. And we would, like, sing the national anthem at Yankee Stadium because the Yankee games are broadcast on the WB network. We'd do, like, street fairs. But we'd also do, like, interstitial commercials, like, it, with a green screen, with Michigan J. Frog. Hey, Michigan J., here's a fresh moment from the Fresh Prince. And then they would show, like, clips of, like, you know, the Fresh Prince. Yeah. And then it would be, like... Next on the WB. Like, I did all of that stuff. Do you still see any of the footage? No, that's all gone now. The footage, I don't know where the footage is. But, like, but that was my first job. I joined a union. I joined AFTRA at the uh-huh. time. That was before SAG and SAG AFTRA and worked emerged. together. Yeah. Um, so I joined AFTRA. And I was like, oh, I'm getting a paycheck for this. It was the first time that I went, oh, I can do this as a profession. This isn't just the thing that I'm doing after school that's really fun. Right? I was taking voice lessons for fun. Uh-huh. Like, I saved up my allowance money. And I was like, I'm going to go take a voice lesson whenever I can afford it. You know, I did... I did the Saturday morning Lee Strasberg acting program for fun, oh. kids program, but like, I, it wasn't. I never thought of it as a profession until I had to join a union, and I was like, oh, and there's health insurance, I can and make there's a living. yeah, and that's what really opened my eyes to go, oh wait, like there's after, like oh there's you can now that I'm on after, I can join equity, like I can be an equity person, like that mm-hmm. that was within my reach now. And equity people were on Broadway, right? Like that that was my thinking. So when it came time to apply to colleges, I applied to half liberal arts like colleges where I would get. A was that degree.
1: as per your parents request or was that a thing I for you I think so
2: my parents never I, I was a you know I I was the first kid in my family to go to college so going to co- not going to college was a must right my parents were never specific about what, what to I do what to, what I was going to study getting the degree was what was important to them um but of course they were like you want to study acting like is there work in there for you mm-hmm. for that? Like, so they didn't, they weren't discouraging, but they also didn't understand it. And you have to understand again, like I have blue collar parents who worked 12 hour. Like I, I barely saw them. They, they, you know, they would check up on you when they were done with me. Like, how are your grades? How's school? Yeah. They would, are you, are you, you know I mean? are you alive? Do you have three meals on the table? Like, you know, they didn't really have that sort of time, you know? So, um, so I I don't know it was a lot of it was I I for their sake I applied to like half liberal arts schools and the other half of the schools I I applied were theater schools Carnegie Mellon NYU Tisch Emerson Bennington College I thought about studying theater at Bennington College um, those were the other programs
1: and we ended up at Carnegie Mellon we ended up at
2: Carnegie Mellon honest I got into Vassar and I got into Carnegie Mellon. Mm. And at the end of the day, those are the two schools I was – I also got into NYU early, but I didn't want to go because it was I grew up in New York and I didn't no, – I wanted to cop something else. Correct. I wanted the college experience. And it was really either Vassar where I was going to get a real degree. I was probably going to you know, be an English major or something. And
1: you would have done a lot of theater.
2: Correct. And- I would have done it on the side, mm-hmm. but I would have studied something else and figured out what grad school to go to to really figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Or it was Carnegie Mellon where – Carnegie Mellon, you are living, breathing, sleeping theater from 9 o'clock in the morning till 9 o'clock at night sometimes later mm-hmm. like it is a conservatory program music theater majors take no other electives in any other school like you are not taking any other classes you are only taking theater classes and has that changed Or it's still it the, is still it's the, same. the same it's still the same program um, and it is very rigorous right. and really honestly one of the biggest deciding factors was that Carnegie Mellon gave me a really good financial aid package so like they gave me grants and loans and work study and they made it possible for me to go, go? so that my parents were able to go this is not only the most affordable option but let telly take the risk of, of studying this for four years and let's see how it pans out because he, we actually have the means to like to do this see see if it'll work out for him wow you know I have to say big props to Carnegie Mellon because uh, there were many people that they accepted my year and other years too that went on full rides based on talent wow and and they they would go right like you can't afford to go but you belong here and they really do use their endowment and their resources in a very smart way to make sure that they get the the, the right people in that program.
1: Yeah. Well, while you were there, uh, is there a role in a production or class? Oh my god. That opened you up to a side of yourself that you hadn't really thought was within your skill set. Uh, and if not, like a play, was there like something in class that served a breakthrough? Or
2: I had many. I feel like it's four years. I had many breakthroughs because mm-hmm. I came from. I came from such a rigorous academic environment in high school. I didn't know how to be in an acting class. And listen, I was an A plus student. I got good grades and I that's how I got to Stuyvesant in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like so I now, now I was in a conservatory program and I, I was fresh freshman acting class. I got a C. It's the first C I've ever gotten in my entire life. And I went to my evaluation and my acting teacher, who's still teaching acting there, his name is Tony McKay, Tony said, Tony was like, listen, Telly, I see you've I know you've read every you've read every book on the reading list. You're probably the only kid who did who did. That like you came in and you read every book on Meisner and and um, and Stanislavski. All of the, you've read the Udahag and you've done it. You've done all your homework. You're a really good student, Telly. And it's not like you don't work hard. He's like, that's not what acting class is about. You actually have to do it. You have to like dive in and do it and like let go of the work. I I didn't know what that meant, right? Like I just you know my whole life has been about if you study hard for a test and you know the information, you go in, you take the test, you get the grade. You can't do that with acting. You actually have to go. All right, I trust. I know this. And you have to like leap off a cliff. That was a big that was a big freshman year breakthrough that I went, oh right. Being a student of the arts is a whole different thing. It's not about a test. This, this being a student for the, the tests are your whole career. Mm. You will constantly be tested. And if you study this, it's not about like, I gotta take the test to get into college, to then take the test to get into grad school, to take the test to get into med school, to take the test to become a doctor, or to take the LSAP, become a lawyer. It's not that. No. It is about it is a process for your entire life. As long as you decide to do this, you will constantly be tested. And and it's about being able to just dive in and like not being afraid to fail. Because that C, I was like, I've never gotten a C in my life. How dare, how dare you give me a C, right? I've worked so hard. I've read everything on the list. I show up to class. I show up on time. I. And he was like, it's not what it's about. He's like, I gave you the C because you don't, you don't dive in fully. And I was like, oh, good to know.
1: And did you find that he was helpful in terms of getting you to break through? I think he was the beginning
2: of a long conversation that I still have with myself about the fear of failure that we all, especially growing up in such a traditional Chinese home where my parents were adamant about go to Stuyvesant, then you go to Harvard, then you become a doctor, then then you do all the things that we could not do as immigrants. Like it's it's ingrained in me to like work hard, right. And do that and, and achieve those goals. And like failing along the process was not an option. But nobody gets good as an artist without failure. And so as an acting teacher, he was like, I, I don't care if you make the most insane choice. I'd rather you do that because of the what you're going to learn along the way. Now, he said that to me in my evaluation. I think I'm just now sort of starting to understand that. Now that you're a professional actor, failure means a totally different thing. Right. Because like now if you fail in the professional world, there are consequences because people will see you fail and that leaves an impression. And whether you like it or not, that impression could mean whether you work or not, or you get called in for the next thing or not. Like, so, oh, I wish I failed bigger in in college because it's a safe place to fail. Your teachers want you to fail. They want you to like fall flat on your face and learn how to pick yourself back up and like, and, and, and gain some lessons along the way through failure all of those teachers kept saying that to me every semester fail big fail big i'd rather you commit and fail big make a big wrong choice than than make a safe boring choice it was it was good advice it's harder to do now it's that's harder to do when you're an adult professional actor of because you you there are consequences to you taking a big risk and sometimes that risk pays off mm. and people are like wow blown away by By that, and then sometimes people are like, "We don't get, we don't get it." That was really weird. Absolutely, that was really weird. Don't ever sing it like that ever again at an audition. Like you know what I mean? Like, so you know, you just never know. Wow, I mean, I think I sort of had a
1: very similar experience, but it's you speak about it in such a precise way. I think that's exactly a big lesson that I learned in school. It was it was less about you know we're going here to learn the lines and we're going to put it up on stage mm-hmm. like you learned how
2: to And now that I it's interesting like now that I te- I also do a lot of teaching so I I teach privately I teach master classes sometimes I adjunct at an NYU at the new studio on Broadway so I and it's and Michael McElroy who is the person that brought me brought me into that program says we have to teach kids how to rehearse that re- they think rehearsal is running the thing over and over again the same exact way and that's not rehearsal And just memorizing the lines right that's not rehearsal they're like rehearsal is for you to dive in and try 12 different things so that you can discover what it is so so and it's and it's interesting and yes they we we of course did that early on at, at Carnegie Mellon you know they there were there were they, were, they were, we were given some techniques about how to like experiment with a scene right. or, you know and and again Carnegie's one of those programs that there's. It's not like Carnegie teaches one method of acting. It's not like so you got a little bit of Miser and a little bit of this and a little bit of you know Viola Spolin. You got a little bit of ev- anything and everything that could work. Right. You, you. They were like whatever works for you. Choose what works. Choose yeah. what works for you. Right. So they kind of touched on everything so that we could kind of develop our own our own toolbox. Correct. Our own process. Um. And uh. And really, that's that's kind of what I do with my students now. That I have to make sure that they they know that rehearsal is not just about memorizing over is like over me- over. right over and over the same with the same inflection inflection intent method do the scene and whisper okay. it do, the- the- right. do, do the scene and do scene. shut the light do do the scene on right do the scene and make it a make it a farce do the scene and make it an opera do the scene yeah. all of it just just it might feel silly and like a waste of time but you might also stumble upon something that's fantastic right awesome
1: yeah um so you finish at, at Carnegie Mellon um we're showcasing. Oh, God, yeah. And, uh, you know, we get to New York. And I was just wondering, who who were you when you first got to Manhattan? Again, well, after- Right, because I'm from here. <laughs> Making your so I had return. the leg up.
2: Yeah, I really did have the leg up to my other classmates who were mostly not from New York City. And actually, during a lot of our spring breaks, they would come to New York and crash with me in New York. And, like, you know, we'd go see shows. And we'd put on a cabaret, Don't Tell Mamas, or something, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, coming back to New York, I was really lucky. I, um, when I, my senior year of college, our thesis play, uh, musical, our big senior musical was company. It was directed by Billy Porter and through, you know, Billy also went to Carnegie Mellon. His first Broadway show was in 1991. When he graduated, he did, he was in the original company of Miss Saigon in the ensemble singing high tenor notes and, you know, covering John. Um, so he knew many of the Broadway Asians that were working in the business, and in 2002, when I graduated, he knew that there was this big, splashy revival of Flower Drum Song coming to Broadway that fall after I graduated. So, And he, there were three Asian kids in my music theater class, so he picked up the phone, and he called his friend Mark Oka, who was his dance captain back in the Saigon days, but was also going to be a choreographer and dance captain for Flower Drum Song, and said, I got these three kids. You got to see them. They're about to graduate. They're perfect for Flower Drum Song. You need to see them. So he's like, but I'm doing a company. I'm teching a show, so they can't leave tech. So he's like, they're gonna have to finish tech at midnight, get on a Greyhound at 1 a.m., get to New York City in the morning at like 9 a.m., go straight to Ripley Greer and do the audition. And that's what we did. So we like went and I stayed there all day long. I did I did a jazz combination, then I did a ballet combination, then I read sides, and then they were like, Do you have something to sing for us? We we heard Billy Porter says you're doing you're doing Bobby and Company Sing being alive. So I sang being alive, which I just sung the night before, at tap. I like I was like, Here goes. You know, it was in my book already and easy to do. And so I ended up getting that, that ended up being my first Broadway show. So even though I came to, I didn't have an agent, I, I came to showcase knowing I have a Broadway show in my back pocket and we, we showcased both in LA and New York. So I did the LA showcase really for my scene partner's sake, but I knew I wasn't going to Los Angeles because I had a Broadway show and, um, and it was, and it took the pressure off a little bit the New York Showcase, knowing that I had a Broadway show, knowing that I was going to go to meetings and say, hey, I have a show coming, you know. So I've had a very unique situation. Wow. Graduating.
1: And once you did graduate, is that, did you did you start working with a uh, representation? Or I did. You, you did?
2: Uh, I am one of those rare people. I am at the same agency I was at when I graduated college in 2002. Um, Mark Redante at who at the time, it was an agency called BRS, Baumer Rodanti, and Shawl. They, he often comes to Carnegie Mellon to work with the students in a master class setting. And so I already had a familiarity with Mark. Mm. Mark has had many Carnegie Mellon people go through his agency, Patrick Wilson, all those people. So he understands kind of, he really understood how, how to transition what our training is at Carnegie and how we're, and sort of what our sensibilities are as actors and what our skill sets are. And he's able to really go and really build a career for, f- from that. You know, um he did it brilliantly with people like Patrick Wilson. Do you know what I mean and and so I you know, I um that's who I what that's who I signed with when I left college, because I got to really know him as a teacher, uh, in a classroom setting. And I'm still with him. It's you know, it's it's a long time. Seventeen it's years with the same agent. Amazing. Um, and they've grown with me. You know, eventually Baumaranti and Shaw merged with another agency called Gage and now they're BRS Gage. So and you know now not only do I have Mark and Charles Bodner who's a great agent over there but now I've gained another great agent from from the Gage Group. Yeah. And also they have a really good LA office so when I was doing stuff in Los Angeles too they were able to coordinate together as well. So they're, they're fantastic. They're, they're fantastic. They're very loyal and um, they're good guys. You know what I like about those guys is uh, often if casting directors go we love calling Mark for you or we love calling Stephen Unger for you or Charles Bodner for you or David Shaw for you. Because and I and like, you know, and I like hearing that because those people at the end of the day are your representatives. They represent you, right? So if it is if it's if they if people that are casting directors that are opening doors or general managers go, we we like negotiating with so and so because it makes it makes it all easier for everyone. Do you know what I mean? I, I have friends who are with very tough agents like agents at William Morris and you know uh, CAA who are tough you know real ball busters but it's sometimes I know my friends who are on the other side go I hate calling so-and-so to negotiate so-and-so's contract I dread it and I never want to be that person do you mean I don't think you have to do business that way maybe maybe another agent would get me more money on things but that's not sometimes that's not what it's all about either do you mean so
1: Mm yeah
2: yeah Um, you know, just now, like
1: in terms of auditions and things just generally, uh, what is the first thing that you'll do with audition material when you receive it? I mean, it's always different depending on the project, but is there something universal?
2: I, Tracy Toms, who I worked with at Rent, always said it in the most succinct, beautiful way. When she picks up a role, when she picks up a piece of paper, she looks at, she looks at what the role on, on the, on the paper and she goes, Great. What are the what are the similar what are the similarities between this person that's on the page and Tracy, and then and then what are the things that are different, and like how do I meld the two, how do I like and it's as simple it really is as simple as that and that is so because whenever you come across an audition you go oh great I have an audition then you go can I find a way into this, and I think that for the the, the you know and sometimes it can be overwhelming you look at the breakdown and you look at the thing and you go uh, that's not me and you go wait 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 maybe it can be me hold on a minute. And you look at it, and you go, "What is similar between these these two people? Between me as a person, as a human being, and between this person on the page?" You will find at least one kernel of something to hold on to, right? Like you know, I, the example I always give my students is, "I don't know what it's like to you know kill people and cook them into pies, you know, I'm not Sweetie Todd, but I do know what it is to to feel like there is injustice in the world and want to do something about it." And if and like and if I can really boil it down to that kernel, that one thing that I connect to, that's my way in. And then I, too, can play Sweeney Todd. Do you know what I mean? Like, so So it, it might feel impossible when you first look at that breakdown, but, you you know, I, I sort of try to find at least one thing that I can hang on to that I go, I get that. I understand that. That's my way in. Totally. Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about going into the uh, into the room, the rehearsal room, not the audition room, and sort of, like, how we break down the work. And I'm going to work backwards and just sort of, like, jump around, like, through your career. But so most recently... You just finished, I believe you said that it's a year and nine months. Yeah. In Aladdin. Yeah. As Aladdin. And I'm wondering if you could talk about stepping into a major role in an already running show and what that experience taught you.
2: Well, listen, I, a lot of my training was in school, but a, a, a big majority of my training was doing summer stock. The summers off between college. So I'm used to putting up a musical in 10 days. Like I'm used to doing a musical at night. And then during the day, rehearsing another musical that's going to go up the week after that, like the theater boot camp of like Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, the Muni, you know, all of those places, you know, um, um, music theater, Wichita, like those places that are like Sacramento Music Circus, you know, those places that, 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 that still do that sort of stock schedule. um, I'm used to that. So they said, hey, you have three and a half weeks to learn Aladdin. I was like, three and a half weeks? What am I going to do with myself? What am I going to do with myself? How wrong I was because... I used every minute of that three and a half weeks. It's a it's a monstrous role, and it's not it's not the stuff that's on stage. It's not the singing, and it's not the lines. It's the show. It's it's the technical aspects of the show and maneuvering the trapdoors, maneuvering flying on stage, maneuver, being safe in that space. It is a it is a huge show, um, and it's it was more that stuff that I had to and also the actual physical stamina of it all I had to prepare right. in a very different way for that than I would any other show
1: That was actually my my next question I was going to say it's so demanding could you talk about like the discipline that it required and like what you would do to prepare for that Sure or?
2: there's a discipline that is required when you do any musical eight times a week on Broadway that you know as far as your vocal health which is which is tied which is very much tied to your physical um, health and exercise and diet on Aladdin it's I mean not only do you aesthetically have to look fit in that show, everybody in Agrabah is aesthetic looks a certain way. So there's an aesthetic that you have to meet. But then you actually do need to be in really good cardio shape to achieve that show. Casey Nicola, every Casey Nicolas show I've ever seen is a workout, right? Mean Girls is a workout, the prom is a workout, and Aladdin is a huge workout. And so um, you know, I had a great physical therapist who said to me, You have to be stronger than your show. So you can't, at the end of two and a half hours of playing Aladdin, you can't feel winded. You should you should feel like there's a part of you that could jump up and do it again that's that's the kind of shape you need to be in to not be injured on that show so you have to make sure that you come into it already in that good of a shape a lot of it honestly is cardio a lot of it is knowing is being like right like and I had I got that lesson when I did rent you know the the dance captain of rent Owen Johnson would say go to the New York sports Club down the block get on a treadmill and and, and sprint and if you can do today for you audio machinery that you have to train yourself to have to kind of get through that show and it is you know Aladdin he right out the gate is one jump where he it's basically a musical theater number parkour style you're jumping over buildings over moving carts you're sliding down banisters you're you know all of that and trying to land some jokes and be funny and da da that that you know so it's um it's it's a challenge so it took it took some training to be able to do that I mean, it was so exciting to see you. It's and it's right. Yeah. Oh, and thank you. But like, it's <laughs> but it's, it's just an it's a it's an it's it's an exciting moment because it's built to be that. It's mm-hmm. built to be thrilling, and the cartoon come to life, which means you know, but cartoons don't have to go to the gym and do cardio. Got to get to the gym, right? Yeah.
1: Um, well, let's just move. Let's move into our time together in Washington. Yeah. So it's 2016. Yeah. We're working on a production of *The Taming of the Shrew*. Mm-hmm. And I just I'm wondering, like, while you're, you know, you're working on both musicals and plays in your career before this, how did you keep, you know, sort of like your classical muscles in shape to prepare for this production? Like, what did you um, what did you do before we arrived in Washington? Full
2: disclosure, my classical muscles were not in shape. And frankly, like, you know, our production of The Shrew was so unique in that it was Taming of the Shrew, but it was really like Taming of the Shrew, the musical with a score by Duncan Sheik. Right. So like, I feel like in many ways, full disclosure, I don't know if I would have gotten hired to do that had I not had the musical skills to also supplement what our director Ed had in mind for Lucentio, you know, so he definitely wanted actors that were musical and could sing and also play instruments. And all of us did that. And I don't know, like, certainly there are other actors who do Shakespeare all day long who are much more skilled at the text and, and delivering text like that than I am because I was rusty, rusty, rusty. That's just not what I get hired to do. So um, Ed did suggest that I go see uh, a coach to coach some of the language before rehearsal started. And I did, I took him up on that and I did that. I, uh, Amy Jo Jackson was awesome. And she's, um, she's very smart. And she gave me some good things to think about the text. And uh, I definitely pulled out my, you know, Shakespeare notes from Carnegie Mellon. I mean, I had to, I had to blow off a layer of dust off everything, but, but really, that's not what I get hired to do. So I just haven't done it. Um, and I was, I have to be really honest. I was very scared to go into that process. I mean, and like people are like, why are you scared? You just like led, you just were the lead in a, you were just the lead in a Broadway show in Allegiance. Like, you, you like, you know what I mean? Like, you were just a Broadway star. How, why are you scared to go to DC to go do? A, and I was like, because I'm gonna be surround. I'm out of my element. You know, it's just and I know I'm going to be surrounded by these really skilled actors. And it's the fear of like, again, the fear of failing in front of these people, you know, and and the embarrassment of failing. Um, And um, but really, I don't know, the only way to really do it is to like dive in and do it and go, okay, like I might suck at this, but I'm going to do my best. And I remembered and it did. It took a long time for me to really get accustomed to to that sort of performance again a big help was Gary Logan, who is who was the voice and speech guy at the Shakespeare Theater, who's no longer there. But he now he's at Carnegie Mellon. Actually, he's teaching voice and speech at Carnegie Mellon. What a get for that school because he's he really was able to help me play catch up and give me the confidence to go. Telly, this is what you do in musicals all the time. Like you make text come alive and you make it musical all the time. Just do it with Shakespeare. Like it's the same thing. And, and he kind of took the fear out of that to the point where you know Michael Kahn was often at rehearsals and he pulled me aside this was somewhere in the middle of the run he said Telly you're good at this you should do more of this and I was like alright that was like honestly that made the whole job worth it to me to get to get a pat on the back from Michael Con- you know what I mean like from the guy you know so who said you're good at this don't doubt yourself you're good at this you should keep doing this and and it was um, it was good it was you know it was, again it was something I really feared going to the process and and the only way was to like dive in and like go I'm scared but What's what's gonna happen if I fuck up some pentameter today? Like you know what I mean? Like nobody's right. gonna no, nobody's gonna get hurt or die. Right. Like I just have to dive in and mess up and pick myself up and do it again till it's right.
1: I often say that too. You know, it's the same as it is a lot of the same thing as musical theater in the sense of you're on a ride in both cases with the meter and you're on a ride with singing, um, and you know how to navigate that so well that it really they they are hand in hand. Yeah. But a question that I have for you that might make you laugh right now. When I was in Washington last year, we were, we were all sitting around a table together, and a lot of us had been, I think, in various productions of Taming of the Shrew. And I jokingly turned to everybody at the table, and I was like, do you think that you could recite the opening monologue still? And all of us were like, no. And then one by one, piecemeal, we remembered all of the speech. And I think if, if I said the first one, I think that you could remember it.
2: No, absolutely not.
1: I'm telling you. Do you remember? No, I, I actually really don't. Tranio,
2: since for the great desire, I had to see Fair Padua. Nope. <laughs> but here's the thing. You have to understand, James, you're catching me after a week of Sondheim. Yes. I, just, like, I, I just did like a week-long like, lyric and lyricist series at Sondheim. I'm trying to memorize Beatles lyrics for a symphony job. I, I'm about to go on tour with Cheetah Rivera, and I have to remember her material. Like, I, I have so like, many James lyrics in my brain. In and it was also many years ago. So, uh, two, and two Broadway shows later, I can't, there's no way, there's no way. And here's the thing, I, it, but if, but if it was my wheel, that's all, also more your wheelhouse. You're much, you're much, you do more straight plays and Shakespeare than I do. Like that, that was my first professional Shakespeare play ever. So no way that's out of, that's out of sight, out of mind. Like it's, it's gone, it's gone. But if you asked me to sing a Sondheim song that I haven't sung in 10 years, right, I from probably college. You're like, yeah, sure. Hold on. I could. I probably could. I know. You know what I mean? Like, that's just... It's just in my its just in, in my vocabulary. In it's book. in my DNA now. Yeah. You know? So, like, in, in the same way that Shakespeare is in yours. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just not really. in mine. You know? And, like, listen. We have... We, we've met some incredible actors when we were down in D.C. doing that production. You know, the Tom Stories of the world who... You know, Tom Story, I bet you I could say, I know you haven't worked on that measure-for-measure measure speech in a really long time. Do it. And he probably could. Right... He could probably pull it. Pull it right out of his heart and do it. Yeah. Like, I... There's no way I couldn't. That's not my thing. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting how
1: sometimes I feel like he doesn't usually stick with me, Shakespeare, doesn't normally stick with me sometimes for that long, but I was so nervous. You talk about being nervous. I was so nervous with the responsibility of understudying that I think the way that I hammered that into my head, I don't think I'll ever let it go because I was so nervous about the prospect of them being like, you, go. You're on. Yeah. So I think that's why it's like. I don't even know. From it. fear, imprinted. Because it is
2: fear, <laughs> pure fear. 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 A little bit of, of fear. A little bit of fear. Never heard anyone. Never heard anyone. Just a little bit. Just, Just a, a little bit. bit. Just don't let it paralyze you. But a little bit of fear is good for it's all good of us. It's good for all of us.
1: Yeah. So now, I mean, allegiance. Yes. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. This
2: you were attached to this from the very beginning. From the first New York City reading. So I was attached to it since 2009 when we did a, the very first reading, that was also the first reading that they brought on Stafford Arima as a director and they brought on Lynn Shankel as a music supervisor. Um, um, that was a, that was really the first time. What for
1: you is the most thrilling aspect of watching the evolution of
2: a show take shape over the course of, I mean, it
1: wasn't a decade, but...
2: Yeah, we we didn't reach Broadway until 2015, 2016 season. So it was a good... It was a good chunk of time. Chunk of time, you know, it was, you know... That's that's like seven years, six yeah. years, seven years, and they those guys have been working on it even before that. Of course, um, and that's fast for a musical, for an original musical. And that's the other thing. This was an original musical, not based on a book, not based on a movie. There was no source material. The source material was this historic event, right? And we we pulled certainly from stories of actual people who were interned, actual Japanese Americans who were interned during that time. But um, uh, but but you know, it was it was something. It was it was really a, a I. Did not know, really, until I worked on that show, what went into making a musical. I mean, you would come to the next reading, you know, and it would be like, that character is now dead. You have, the you, that song you sang in the first act is gone. Here's a new song. And then as we got, and that was just for the reading processes. Then when you had the actual workshop process, where you had four or five weeks of a workshop, that was huge transitions. That, that's where I really, st- and, I, and, and also Stafford built a very collaborative room where he would go, the scene is not working. Everybody, gather—you know, I know we had this schedule to work on the scene today, but the scene's not working. Let's just all sit in a circle, actors included, and talk about what this moment is and what this moment should be. So it's weird. Like, when I listen to Allegiance Now, I hear a lot of stuff that I contributed to the room. Because Stafford—that was the environment that Stafford built for all of us. He says, you know, ten heads are better than three, you know, as we try to figure this out. Do you find then, too—I mean—
1: do you prefer to be working in a room where the playwrights or the writers are alive as opposed to, like, you know, when we did Shakespeare, obviously he's not going to contribute to the room, but do you enjoy the prospect of
2: having yes, that Yes, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy having the writer, especially when you are when you have the luxury of, you know, I just finished the Sondheim concert last night and, you, you know, if Stephen Sondheim is there, he's 89, I can still ask him. A question. Uh, like, that lyric, why that lyric? Yeah. You know, in this concert we did last night, we also featured a lot of cut lyrics, why did you cut that and made it this this thing that we've known for decades? And he goes, and he's able to explain to right. you the reason, and that informs me, that informs that only Beyond makes me about that only makes me a better actor. That just makes me a better actor. Now I think I am that sort of actor, right? Like I think I am also one of those actors that I and I think this is also my training from Carnegie Mellon is that we, we we act like directors. So, like the first couple of years of free scenes that you do, your freshman year, sophomore year, you are you block your own scenes. You don't have a director blocking your scene. And oftentimes when you finish the scene and you get the critiques from your acting teachers, oftentimes those things were like, So now why did you cross downsta like why did you cross downstage there? What was the intention? Oh, I don't know. well why don't you know? Like, or was it arbitrary movement? Why did you why did you then then cross there? So in many ways. Even though we're not asked to block in the professional world, we're not asked to block scenes, but I think the way that we're trained as actors at Carnegie Mellon, you're you're asked to look outside of your skill set of what it is that you do. My my job is just to be present and tell a story in the moment, right? It's not my job to block the scene. It's not my job to like look at this text and go, is there an is there a cut that can be made? Right, but like at Carnegie, when we did those free scenes, we had to cut our own scenes. We had to block our own scenes. We had to, you know, like decide where the furniture went. So in some ways, we were also set designers. And then oftentimes, our acting teachers would go, "But why did you put that table there? That doesn't that doesn't help you? That doesn't help you in the scene." Yeah. So why you you why don't you move? The, why don't you do, when you block the scene? Why don't you move the table? So even though yes, we were being trained as actors, we were also being trained in the other departments, to to kind of think out think how something is constructed. Because it's all connected at the end of the day. So I think, I think for me I like to look at I, I work outside in a lot too is part of the process. That is the process, right we are again, we are not just going to like memorize lines and throw the thing up. That's not what it's about. yeah that it's that this process is really trying to unearth and discover something and the only way you can really do it is to dive head first, even though that thing might be cut. So you might work. I mean, I've often worked my tail off learning a dance number or learning a song. Only you know and getting it in my voice and getting it in my body. Hours of blood, sweat, and tears in a rehearsal studio. You know, and then cut, 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 cut the next day because it doesn't work. Yeah. The only way, but the only way to know if it does that it doesn't work is to like put do it, up. it. Is to put it up. So I don't know. It's uh, it's just part of the process, and it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I just I just think that as actors, that's that's the gig. So. So, like, Strap the quicker you embrace it, the less hard it's going to feel in the moment. Strap in, and here we go. That's right.
1: Yeah. What uh, Speaking of other new works um, and diving in, was The World of Extreme Happiness a new play when you were working on it at Manhattan Theater Club? Oh, yeah.
2: That was, um, so that, the history, that play had already been written and already had a premiere at the Goodman. Okay. And the actor that did my role at the Goodman was actually supposed to do it in New York and couldn't so um i ended up being a very last minute replacement i remembered like i was i was on a concert job i think i was in racine wisconsin or something like somewhere somewhere really random and like i put myself on tape in a, in a hotel room for that job um and rehearsals was gonna start in like two weeks and they're like okay you got the job you, you start rehearsals right in january right right after this is done and you know and so it was one of those things where I had to completely like reschedule my life and change my life and go but it was a play at MTC I was right. like, gosh like what a I, gift. I, I dreamed of working at MTC I dreamed of working from an theater club and on a brand new American play and it was a play that was about China now and <laughs> like what was happening there with, with the labor force and and so um, I I was like great but that was it was definitely hard you know that I, coming into that was a combination of I'm a replacement of another actor, and there were other actors that had already built a relationship with the previous actor, and also, and but the playwright was also still doing rewrites for the New York production as well. Sure. So it was both. You know? And
1: do you find, um, you know, either with this play or just in general, like when you're home after a rehearsal, what does an evening look like for you? As you are you reviewing what was happening, are you preparing for the next day? If you got the rehearsal schedule or yeah,
2: it depends listen 10 to 6 rehearsals is really hard Yeah, and sometimes you have to come home and do homework cause you have to cause the next you're, you're gonna be working on your song tomorrow or whatever and you just have to do the homework and sometimes you have to just like d- turn on an episode of something really like Alf or something something or Cheers or something really mindless and just like get away and have a glass of wine because you just have to like that's that's actually better sometimes that's actually better for you is to take a step back from something yeah absolutely I completely agree I'm still working on finding that balance. <laughs> but but it, I think it's different for every job. Yeah. You know? Um, I'm also a firm believer in using my ten to six time wisely. So even though I'm not I might not be called from ten till, you know, noon on a in particular day rehearsal, slot. in that time slot I'm gonna work on the I'm show. Rehearsing. So that I'm not trying to cram the night before. Right. I, if I know the next day, hey, I'm not called between ten to one or hey, I'm called from ten to ten to one and then I have a big a big break until 5 o'clock, I will hang in the hallway of the rehearsal hall and, like, and work. And not, like, so that I can take a break at 6 and have dinner and, like, be, you know, watch an episode be of human something. human, telly. Yeah. Totally. For
1: Rent, yeah. I know we've taken a big jump right now. I was just wondering how you talk about or how you work on making something your own, mm-hmm. especially in regards to something so well-known and so sort of, um, I mean, I'm sure that you had iconic. listened to that recording. Yeah, it's iconic.
2: Um, I, so it's interesting when I first, I started as a member of the ensemble, I played Steve and others and I understudied Angel Mm -hmm. and the first couple of shows that I went on for Angel, our resident director, Evan Ensign, again, not, the feedback was not good. And Evan was like, basically Evan, Evan and also Michael Greif were like this show, it is nothing more if you really think about it than tables, chairs, lights, and this score. He's like, the rest of it is you have to infuse it with your own individuality. And as an understudy, I came into it going, I have to fill in the hole for the night. I have to fill in the missing piece for the night. And I was trying to be the actor I was understudying. I was trying to do his bits. And I was like, actually, no, like he was like, it's it's reading as if you are doing somebody else's performance. So you really do have to find your own individual way into this and know that we want that. That's why we hired you. And and that was a good lesson to learn too. Because me as the as the good worker bee that I am, I go, Oh, I'm just filling in I'm filling in for the night. So I have to make sure that my show is is um is is helping everybody else's show. And actually what I learned was it's the opposite. You actually have to really yeah, that is a moment for you to take really know how to take your space. Of course, within within the blockings and the confines of what the show is, right? But it is upon you to really make some good individual, honest choices that are uniquely totally. you and then and then be able to have the other actors around you, especially in an ensemble show like that, then support those choices. So uh, there were nights, I know that me, when I'm understudies on, like when I was Aladdin and there were Jasmine understudies on, I made sure that they had a good show. I made sure that it felt like their, it was their show eight times a week. You're right. And, so, and, and I made sure that I could support all of their individual choices. When I was younger and understanding Angel, I didn't know to like, I didn't know that I was allowed to do that. Do that. I, I didn't know that I was allowed to, like, be an individual and that that's really what was going to help me make that my own. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, and, like, all the angels in the building, radically different. You know, and that that was the, that was the beauty of the show. Yeah. That's what made, that's what made it so exciting when Understudies were on. It'd be like, oh, my gosh, Telly's on his angel. Like, th- this is going to be a different show tonight. Yeah. That's exciting. That's good. That keeps the production fresh. Keeps it moving. Um, And
1: then I wanted to end with Pacific Overture. Oh, um, and I actually knew who you were from the recording of Someone in a Tree, which I know I have in common with our, our friend Matt, so let's give a shout out to Matt Russell. But, um, I wanted to just talk about Pacific Overtures in the sense of, we're in a room with, like, theater legends here, we're working with collaborators yes. and colleagues and things like that, and you were so young, I guess, when that I was process. 24. Uh, like, how do you learn, I think the late, great Jan Maxwell used to say, um, like respect all revere none or something, if you could talk about the being a, how do you balance being a great admirer of someone, but also learning
2: how to be their collaborator. I'm going to share a really great story with you that only the Pacific Overtures people know. So the Pacific Overtures revival happened at Roundabout and there's a Roundabout rehearsal space on 45th Street that is teeny, 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 tiny. So we blocked that huge show in this teeny, tiny rehearsal room. The first day of rehearsal, they said, we're going to do a sing-through and a read-through of the entire score, the whole thing top to bottom. And Stephen Sondheim will be sitting at the table in the circle and so will John Weidman. I mean, everybody. We've had no rehearsal. We've like, So everybody just came in stumbling through the score. And, you know, in this teeny tiny rehearsal room with, all of, with this giant cast, it got very warm. So Steven Sondheim was wearing a sweater at the time. And because it got warm, he took off his sweater. Underneath his sweater was a t-shirt that had a South Park character on it. It was Mr. Hanky, the Christmas Pooh was on his t-shirt and it was the Christmas poo going howdy ho that was what was on Stephen Sondheim's t-shirt so all of us as we're trying to get through Pacific Overtures like we were like and this is before iPhones this is before people could just like snap a picture but I remember BD Wong was like I have a camera I'm going to like snap a picture and there's this great picture of Steve looking down with his Mr. Hankey t-shirt like South Park t-shirt on and so of course Beedy was the only one with the balls to go up to him after during a break and go Steve I mean you have to exp- what is what's up with the South Park and so and Steve said oh well you know I mean everybody you know thinks that I'm Steven Songham and I go home and I listen to Beethoven or something but he's like I go home and I watch South Park I love South Park and that and and now looking back on it I don't know if it was by accident or if he did it on purpose mm. to break the ice, the Cause he knew how nervous, of... cause he knew how nervous we all were to do this for him. Correct. And, and, and I, and I don't know. I still don't know. I don't know if it was intentional. It was warm in that room. I mean, we were all taking off layers because we were all of us right. crowded in this tiny room, reading this stressed out and nervous and you know, yeah. cold sweat from like trying to sing in front of Stevenson. But like, but I'm I, I now looking back on it, like, did he do it on purpose right. or like... Like the great sort of a unifier of like... Or did it just cosmically happen at the right time? And that cast, at the end of the day, from that on, that was the icebreaker. Right. And, you know, it, it was a very rare thing. Where I'm told it was very rare that Steve shows up as often as he did to our show. And he did. He came to Pacific Overtures a lot. And he would hang downstairs in the basement of Studio 54 a lot. And I remember there was one night. Oh, I'll never forget it. He brought Bernadette Peters to the show. And so from the stage, all we knew that we saw Steve in his house seat. And then we saw just the red hair popping out next to Steve. And so of course, like as we all like at the show's over curtain call, you know, and then we run, we like run down to try to catch Bernadette Peters. And this was another great moment that also was, like, that broke the ice for us. But, like, Steve was still in the theater with Bernadette at the time. And we're running. We're like, where's Bernadette? Where's Bernadette? Where's Bernadette? And then there's Steve and Bernadette walking out the door, out the front door of Studio 54. And there's just, like, there's just, like, a gaggle of of Asian actors, like, stalking them, basically, behind them. But, like, from a distance, trying to not, like, invade their space because they were talking. And, of course, Steve looks behind his shoulder and sees, like, there's, like... There's like 12 of us stalking him, like peeking around corners, like trying to look, not look like we were following him, but really following him to try to like say hi to Bernadette Peters. So he turns around and goes, uh, do you all want to say hi to Bernadette Peters? <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, it was one of those, it was one the, it's that, it's like, you know, you work with those people and then you go. Oh, right, he's just another—he's just another person in the sandbox. He happens to be a living legend and a brilliant and a genius mastermind and you know a master wordsmith and a brilliant musician. But he's—and I—all the other thing that I really loved—we were we were doing Pacific Overtures, and you know me as a young twenty-four-year-old actor who studied musical theater, Sondheim is a bible, right? Like there's no there's no changing notes and rhythms. My favorite part was. You know, we were singing through something and then Paul Geminiani picks up his cell phone and calls Steve him and goes, hey, can we take this up half a step? And I, I was, my my jaw was to the ground. I said, we're going to transpose this. Right, this is. This and he is was sacred. like, yeah, he's like, why not? He's like, he, he wrote this in the 70s for those people's keys. He's like, it should be in your keys now. It's a revival. It should be in your keys. It mind blowing for you. And it blew my mind that it was still a living, breathing thing. And you're like, "All oh, right, Like. Yes, he's brilliant and he's the master of our art form. But he's like, Yeah, change the key. Sing in whatever key you want to sing in it in. And that was it. He was like, Yeah, sure. Sing in whatever key you want to sing it in. Wow. So it was one of those things where it it leveled it. He he was trying to make it work too. Yeah. He never thought it was a perfect piece. The whole reason why they did that Pacific Overtures was because he wanted to tell that story of American imperialism and the effect it had on Japan through Japanese eyes, which is why the original production was done in this kabuki style. Uh-huh. That, but that was always the intention was to go, we want to tell this through Japanese eyes. But it was three white guys doing it. Steve Sondheim, John Weidman, Hal Prince. Then they met this incredible director, Amon Miyamoto from Japan, who finally was able to really tell it through Japanese. And they were like, this is, this is going to complete the circle for us. This is going to complete that mission that we had many, many years ago that we d- couldn't quite get right with the original production. And they loved that original production. People who saw it loved it. Right. But they were like, what we were trying to do as artists, we couldn't accomplish as three white guys. Now we've brought this Japanese guy over from Japan, and it is still the the first... It's the first Asian person to ever direct a Broadway musical, Amo Miyamoto,
0: wow. uh,
2: from Japan to tell that story from a Japanese perspective.
1: I mean, I imagine that that was truly a like finger what word am
2: I looking for like a pinching pinching. pinch yeah, me Like yeah it it was it was definitely pinch me because I I just you know Sondheim was just it was he was brilliant notes and lyrics on a page for me and that suddenly, and also that person that like created into the woods that made me want to do theater in the first place so like he, that's what he was to me it's like you know we, we put him on this pedestal as a god and yet he is just a writer just like anybody else, I had this other really magical moment with Steven Sondheim. It was at a preview for the original *Light in the Piazza*, and you know, and 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 Steven Sondheim has a very dear relationship with, with Mary Rogers Four. and of course Adam Gettle, and this was Adam Gettle's big show, and this was right after *Pacific Overtures* had closed. We had done all of these birthday celebrations for Steve's seventy-fifth birthday, all of that, and I was wearing. This was back in the day when people used to wear show jackets. I wore my Pacific Overtures show jacket with my name on it to Pacific Overtures to the preview of Piazza. Light in the Piazza. Steve Sondheim was also at that preview. Now Steve Sondheim was at the bar and he was hiding behind like the coat check because he didn't want to be spotted, you know, at in the audience. But he saw me. He saw and he was like, "Tell me, come here." So he grabbed me and my husband Jimmy, and he was he had a, I'll never forget it. He had a full like gin and tonic that he was drinking, and he he chewed through the lime. I will never forget that. And Jimmy and I just watched him chew through this line, but he was in tears. And he was like, oh, the end of act one is just so beautiful. And like, he was like the two of them, they don't speak, you know, they don't speak the same language. So they have to sing that they love each other in Oz. And it's so beautiful. And he was moved to tears. And he was like, and I'm so proud of Adam. I mean, it was, it was but it was there, there, I watched Stephen Sondheim fanboy basically is what happened. He was so moved by what was happening. On his and I was, and here's the guy who's like, who's done that to so many audiences around the world over many, many decades. Here he is being moved by a piece of art that is not his, right And it was so great for me to go, oh my gosh, like he he, he fanboys just like we fanboy over
1: him. Oh my gosh. And what a piece to fan over
2: that, Well I mean it was well deserved, right I mean that end of Act one when the two of them finally kiss and it's and they just sing ah because they have nothing else to sing right And here's somebody who writes lyrics for a living who's like, right. uh, that's the exactly right. Like he's, he is the most dexterous lyrical person. Right. I think he was caught by surprise. He was like, there is, what, what what lyric can you possibly write for these two characters for that moment that don't speak the same language? They're just gonna have to make love and sing ah. And then Margaret comes in. Uh, Right. It's like, it's great. It's great. And he was just so, I think he was just so moved by that. You know? And it was great to see him moved. I love these stories, Telly. Good stories. I got, I got a whole bunch of them. You, I know we meant when, to do when, another whole. When episode. we do, when we, do, <laughs> when we do this again in ten years, I'll have even more. I
1: can't wait for that. Well, we're nearing the end, <laughs> and I'm just wondering my final two questions for you. Uh huh. Are there any roles that you're still dying to play, or are you looking to do something that hasn't been written?
2: I, um, it's interesting. I'm a role that I thought of that I'm dying to play because I'm sitting across from you. Uh, and I know this is going to sound like douchey actor of me, but I would love to play Hamlet one day. I would love to tackle a classical text like that again one day. And there is something about that character that I would love to tackle. I think every actor wants to tackle it, right, at some point. But, but that there's something about that play yeah. of of uh, that I would love. I would love to be able to do that one day. A huge task. I, I I'll probably be awful in it, but I I would love a stab at it. Yeah, And I feel like at 39, uh, correct, correct. <laughs> but I feel like at 39 going on 40, I like would love to be able to, I think I, I think I have enough in me to, to at least take a first stab at it. Yeah. Stab. I love that. Yeah. I, I think it's because I'm with you and like, you know, you, you, you always remind me of that scary time when I was tackling some Shakespeare and really out of my comfort zone. What am I do what am I doing here in a room with Michael Kahn doing Shakespeare at the Shakespeare Stop. Theater? You know what I mean? Like there's a part of you that goes, God, I got this job, and now that's like, yay, I got the job, and it's like, oh shit, I got the job. You're like, I actually have to be good in this thing. Then you have to be like and good with other shake- with other actors that do this all day long. I have to be good with Tom like neck on stage with Tom Story, who is like one of the best, you know, Shakespeare actors I've ever met, who is brilliant. You know what I mean? You're just like, I have to be like I have to act with him.
1: It's <laughs> so funny. It brings me back. I mean, you know, sitting in rooms and watching you and Tom and everybody work in such odd, with beautiful. But you were wonderful.
2: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You really God. were. So, please. I had no idea that it, it scared you so much. Oh, You're really, scary. I mean, First Shakespeare. Wonderful. First Shakespeare. Scary as hell. And, like, and also, like, I, I also had really, I had two mates with me in that show that were that were so like helpful too you know that were that also did this a lot more so like the fact that i had you know matt russell and drew foster there and the three of us were like a little like band of, we were like, a band of we were like a band of misfits oh. right like on and off stage and we've stayed very very good friends from that but you know, drew teaches shakespeare he directs shakespeare yes. matt this is what he does is classical text and so but it was it, in a wonderful way they helped me with the Shakespeare and because we were doing all this musical theater stuff I yeah. helped them with the musical part absolutely. do you know what I mean so like so like it was it was really it was really great that we were all kind of out of our comfort zones and were able to make each other comfortable and, and I think that's why we've remained really good friends absolutely well the finale question adds, oh gosh
1: I love ending with a love note from you oh. to the American theater what makes you keep coming back and why does it continue to ignite your soul?
2: Um that's a very good question James. I I've learned this about myself. I love performing. Don't get me wrong. I really love to perform. I love being on stage. I what I love more is is the family that I've built because I've been doing it. So, the, you know, I I grew up as an only kid. In Brooklyn, my parents could only afford one, right? And also my Chinese parents were like, we got a son, we can quit. That's so Chinese, do you know what I mean? Um, little did they know that they wouldn't have a gay son who wasn't going to give them a, an heir, like a like you know somebody to carry their name. But, you know, I think if they knew that, they might have tried for another son. <laughs> but but anyway, but like I, I, I diverge. But I, but you know, I I do love to perform, but really it's, I, I've i built so many wonderful um family members because of the theater. You know, like I refer to like like our, our band of shrew boys like they're like brothers to me. It's like a band of brothers, you know. And like and I think of in you know, my rent cast, I th- I call them my rent family. I call them my Aladdin family, my Agra family, you know. And so like it's it's I I, I as somebody who never had brothers and sisters and playmates, I feel like my whole life has been about finding playmates to play pretend with. And the fact that I can do that, and that is my job, and give joy and entertain others while doing it, and and also build this network of amazing artists and be able to work with them, you know, side by side. That's 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 why I do it. That's really why I do it. It's it's for the I, the simple way of saying it is I do it for the hang. It's a really good hang, and I get to hang with some of the most extraordinary people in the world, who um who 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 I believe are 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 doing a very necessary part in our society in our world you know without actors to remind us of our sense of community and our sense of compassion that our ability to be compassionate to each other you know our ability to connect to one another like that is becoming more and more necessary in our world and you know the the, this band of merrymakers this band of like misfit players like this we we are doing something important and i and i love that we all really want to do it together do you mean so it's it's become i don't know I've 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 developed a really wonderful theater family, and um, that's really that's I think that's really the reason why I do it.
1: I always get a little choked up at that question and the answer, yeah. but yeah, I mean I think you say that so beautifully, stated that excuse me. Well, we've reached the finale. Oh, I wish we could keep going, but we've reached the end. But thank you so much. Thank you for, for having doing me, this Telly. I had such a good time. And. Uh, Love you very much. Love you too. Bye.
2: Bye.